Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 21 of Clear and Vivid. I'm here with my producer, Graham Shedd, with news about some of the people you'll be hearing this season. Wonderful conversations. Yes, and we start the new season with just one of those wonderful conversations, uh, a return visit with Dr. Eric Topol. He was on the show back in 2019, a few months before COVID hit. He was talking then about the impact artificial intelligence was having on the practice of medicine, but he was so alarmed by the misinformation and disinformation surrounding COVID that he started a regular online newsletter called Ground Truths. And that soon became one of the best sources of the known and even the unknown facts about the pandemic as it unfolded. So we we invited him back to get his take on what the experience of writing his newsletter was like, including the torrent of abuse he got from trolls. But one of the topics you asked him about was something positive, which was the astonishing success of the COVID vaccine. Here's Eric Topol. So this was a work in progress for multiple decades. So the idea that, oh, sure, we had the sequence of the virus, and 10 months later we had vaccines that were tested in 70,000 people with 95% efficacy and good safety. Well, it wasn't just 10 months. It was that 30-year lead-up. So unfortunately, this was a miracle, a biomedical miracle, which still is today, Alan, taken for granted by so many people. You know, when when Tony Fauci, who I have the highest regard for, when he said we might have a vaccine in 18 months when the pandemic was, you know, getting its legs, I thought that was a fantasy. I mean, how could we possibly get a vaccine? The average time it takes is eight to 10 years. And many and many pathogens, we know we still don't have a vaccine, right? So when he said that, I said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's like um, wishful thinking. But, you know, then we got it in 10 months with the highest efficacy you could imagine. So, yeah, this was momentous. But what's really the, the thing that's so extraordinary is we've now got this mRNA nanoparticle package that we can use against, now we see an RSV vaccine, which is, you know, RSV kills as many people as flu. Uh, we and, and, and for children as well. We're going to have a universal flu vaccine, which is incredible because our flu vaccines have not worked very well and we have to change them all the time. We're going to have vaccines now against pathogens we've never had before and much more effective. And 
cancer vaccines, vaccines against autoimmune diseases, and even potentially against neurodegenerative diseases. So this, this package that's now going to help promote genome editing, so many things are coming out of it because, you know, billions of people got this mRNA nanoparticle uh, and it can be tweaked. It can be much more effective with less side effects. And so the, the exciting future here is, is really, uh, really quite extraordinary. We've talked on Clear and Vivid a few times now about artificial intelligence and how harmful it can be in the future. But I was interested in what Eric had to say about the benefits that AI can bring to medicine. This is going to be the biggest transformative um, impact in medicine uh, in my almost four decades of being uh, a physician. It's really quite extraordinary. Everything on from getting rid of keyboards, keyboard liberation, which would be great for patients and clinicians alike. So during an examination, the doctor and I would talk to each other. He wouldn't have to look away at the keyboard to type his notes. The computer would pick up the speech and process it all by itself. Better, I hope, than Netflix does when I search for a movie. Right, right. It's happening already. It's, it's extraordinary to see these notes that are synthetic from the voice. The only thing you have to do as a doctor is when you're doing the exam of the patient, you have to talk about it so it will be captured in the note. But the notes are far better than the ones that that were that were we currently are used to. But also, you have the future appointments being made, the tests that need to be done that are set up, the uh, nudges to the patient that are being uh, suggested, like, did you check your blood pressure or did you do this? Subsequently, everything is getting automated. And this whole idea of the gift of time that we spoke about four years ago, we're starting to see it actualize. And not just, of course, the face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact, but also getting rid of this data clerk function for doctors and, and nurses. This is really important. One thing that I think, this is right up your alley, Alan, but one of the things I was struck by is that when you use GPT-4, you can actually make doctors communicate better. Because what you can do is, when the, when the voice recording is made into the note, and then you say, as a doctor, could I have done any better in communicating this to the patient? Chat GPT-4 will tell you all the things you did wrong. Oh, my God. I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It's just incredible. So it says you weren't sensitive. You weren't listening properly when the patient said oh, such wow. and such. You, you didn't explain it in terms that were understandable and such and such. And here you have this chatbot coaching to be a better doctor. It's amazing, actually. And a lot of people haven't gotten onto that. And it's pretty, this is something where the machines can make us more human. And who would have guessed, right? Daniel Liebeskind is known around the world for his groundbreaking architecture, which, which is a pun I didn't intend, but I'll stick with it. We first met when Arlene was interviewing him for a book about people who grew up in the Bronx, and I found him to be fascinating. I think for him, a building is not just something that contains people or simply is the structure in which people do things. Instead, he thinks of the building itself as an experience. 
when I design a building, I don't try to impose some limited idea of, of, of uh, that, that, that is verbal. It's an idea which is in space and in time, and it's open to interpretation. And I think this is why people do have experiences, because it's not just a, a metaphor. It's not just something you will. It's about the acoustics of the space, the light in the space, the proportions, the material of the space. That's really the language of architecture, because, you know, we cannot use words in architecture. We can use only those those things which, which speak in their own way. Your shapes are so unconventional when you compare them to a boxy house, you know, or a, box, a boxy office building. They curve, they bend, they jut out at angles. Sometimes at, from the outside, I wonder what's holding it up. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've departed from the one angle, which is the 90-degree angle. Think about it. There were 359 other angles <laughs> and other possibilities. <laughs> so, you know, I've always been, I've been always been fascinated why people have gravitated to something so narrow. Because when we look at Baroque architecture, architecture of the pyramids, architecture of Stonehenge, architecture of China, we see how many diverse uh, ideas of geometry there are. And that's what I love. I love geometry, and I love the sense of being able to express the spaces with with the richness of, of geometry and of the materials. As you develop these unusual angles and curves and so on, are you doing it by hand? Are you using a computer? How do you, how do you work? Yeah. I don't use a computer. You know, I have the iPad. That's about as much as far as I go <laughs> in drawing on my iPad. And there are many programs that we can use, but I, I really, you know, I love the traditional pencil, you know, I, I'm, you know, or, you know, whatever it is that, that people used long time ago, it's, it's as good as a computer and it doesn't break down and you don't need to charge it, just a pencil. And, and of course you need a ruler to be accurate at some point. You need to have the straight edge, you need to have the curves perfectly drawn but you can do it like any young person or a child. You can you you don't need more than that. It's a very modest profession. You don't need much much for it. It's not like atomic physics where you need to be equipped with calculus and a, and a plethora of complexity. In architecture, you need a piece of paper, a pencil, your mind, and look far beyond the horizon towards your dream. You've also said that optimism drives architecture. Oh yes. Of what, course. What do you mean by that? What, how does optimism, how is that connected to architecture? Well, look, you can be a pessimist in any other profession. As a poet, as a musician, you can write in a minor key. You can, you can be a pessimist as a general. You can be a pessimist as an economist, as a doctor. You can be a, you know, you, you can be a pessimist in every profession except for architecture. Why? Because in architecture, you are drawing and building a foundation always for something to come. It's, it's, it takes a long time to even build a small building. So you're positing by, by digging the soil that the world is going to be a beautiful world. It's not going to be a, sort of a, a dark and gray world. It's going to be a wonderful world with sunlight and wonderful people coming to that space and, and love and, and spirit. That's why architects are driven by, by, by a positive outlook, by, Optimism. I, I always say, you know, if you want to be an architect, that's the only thing you need to have. If you're a pessimist, you might as well not go into it because it'll destroy you because architecture doesn't work that way. 
One of our other returning guests is astrophysicist Michael Turner. He played an important role in helping get the James Webb Space Telescope funded when its future was a little uncertain. So we asked him back to get his take on what the Webb Telescope has discovered so far. And he started with his reaction to seeing the very first image from the telescope last July. Here's Michael Turner. Here they are. It was supposed to be a calibration showing how they had gotten all the mirrors aligned. And so there's a bright star at the center. Uh, but a lot of us weren't interested in the bright star at the center. We saw all these little fuzzy galaxies at the edges. And we said, oh, my God, this thing really works. And then, of course, the when in July they released the first light images, um, they were full color, and uh, they they just jumped right out there. I compared it to the Hubble Deep Field, which was our previous best uh, look at the distant universe. But the Hubble looks in the uh, visible. And the Hubble Deep Field, which has inspired me for years, looked dull and plain <laughs> compared to... <laughs> and, they, they just jump, and you could compare galaxy by galaxy, and they just jumped right out at you. And then the astronomers got going; they got excited, and uh, let's see how far away they are. And some of them emitted the light that we see today when the only universe was only a few hundred million years old, or thirteen and a half billion years ago. And um, that's amazing. I'll give you one surprise, and, and, and it could lead to a challenge. Um, the earliest part of the universe, there were a lot more stars than we ever imagined. So it was brighter. So uh, looking way back to a few hundred million years after the beginning, there are a lot more stars than we had predicted. I, I should put predicted in air quotes, because we don't really understand how stars are formed. And so predicting is, guess would be a better word. And that's fantastic because we study the universe by the light that comes from the stars. So if it hadn't lit up so brightly, it, it would have been harder to see. And so uh, star formation proceeded like gangbusters early on compared to what we expected. Today, it's really slowing down. Um, there are less stars being born. You may have you you and I both have noticed that in our lifetime. Uh, <laughs> when we were growing up, there were the Beatles, there were the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Every year, there was a new star, and stars are fewer and far between now. We are literally figuring out how the universe began, how the universe will end, uh, when galaxies were born. We're sorting out the story of the first stars and the galaxies to us. These human beings that only a few thousand years ago were uh, walking around. I don't think we were going to universities or things like that. We, were, we didn't have telescopes a few thousand years ago, but after a few thousand years, we're able to figure out how the universe began, what the laws are that govern it, uh, grappling with ideas as big as uh, the birth and destiny of the universe. Boy, that's exhilarating. Our next guest is Brenna Hassett. She's a Californian archaeologist, but she's now working at University College London. And she's written a delightful book called Growing Up Human. It delves into what she argues is a unique but unappreciated specialness we humans have. 
our extraordinarily long childhood. Here's how you began the conversation with Brenna Hassett. So you have this way of introducing insight into our childhoods, something we all share. But by comparing it to how we got this way through the evolutionary process, it really throws it into a new perspective, I think. Oh, thanks. I mean, I I hope so. It's it's one of my pet peeves that um, we talk a lot about the evolution of things like man the hunter or fire or tools. But some of the things that I think are actually incredibly important for our species get kind of overlooked, despite the fact that, you know, um, the only way we get more of our species is by having children. <laughs> right. And the way we care for our children is one of the ways in which you apply, as far as I can tell, you apply the technical term weirdness. We're, <laughs> we're weird compared to other animals. What, what makes us weird? Oh, we are so weird. And, and I mean, it, it starts at the beginning and it just goes on. So, um, you know, I like, I like to think of uh, the weirdness as really starting before any individual child is actually born. Um, we're really weird as animals because um, we do this thing called pair bonding. Mm. And the rest of, you know, the animal kingdom has decided that that's just a waste of resources. Why would you pair off? Only about 5% of animals go for pair bonding, unless you count birds, but of course they're weird there's a bunch of evolutionary theories about why we would do this. Primates do it a lot more than other animals, about 15% of them. And then we seem to be really, really into it. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating that tells us a lot about us is essentially it gives us an extra pair of hands. Mm. So I, I like to think about children because um, while I was writing this book, I had two um, as uh, sort of bottomless pits of need. Human children, <laughs> they need a lot. Um, and I think one of the ways that we can look at one of our sort of, um, you know, all of our weirdnesses is that they're all geared around feeding the insatiable demands of our super, super needy children. Um, so one of the things that we've done is actually basically invent dads. My favorite of the of the primates, of the non-human primates, are little little tiny guys like the marmosets. Um, and their dad, his sole job is just carrying those babies. That dad marmoset is there. He's going to carry those two babies for a year. Mm. <laughs> so, mom's off doing stuff. She's busy. Um, but it looks like, you know, um, we have not only dads, but we have a, a secret weapon that basically no other species has in terms of caring for our children, um, which uh, is, is a highly suspicious invention, totally, totally weird. And that is grandmas. Yeah, they're very, very useful. Yeah. And totally, totally evolutionary out of the park. Um, like just such a strange, so species who have grandmas, us, some whales, no other species. Really? It's, that's it's so interesting. Yeah. Because if you think about it from a sort of evolutionary perspective, why would you turn off the ability to have babies, right? If the game is to make more babies. Yeah. And there are species that continue to have babies way late in life. All of them. Yeah. So even, um, even though they may not have very successful babies, 
um, some uh, like chimpanzee is still have basically still has eggs and still has the capacity. Technically, oh. it doesn't really work out. But for us, we stop. And this is an evolutionary sort of theory to explain why we have older women who aren't busy having babies of their own. It's called the grandmother hypothesis. And it's this idea that grandmothers are essential to basically upping the investment in our super, super needy babies. Adam Gopnik's books and his essays for The New Yorker have covered a wide range of topics. But what's resonated with me the most, I think, is his book called The Real Work. I've thought a lot about this conversation with Adam because it concerns something I've been working on all my life, which is to find that mysterious place where you can do something, some skill that you wished you had but maybe felt it was beyond your reach, and suddenly you're doing it well enough that you begin to sense you have a kind of mastery over it, and you, you get into the flow. Not everyone can get all the way to that kind of mastery of the great painters or musicians, but most of us can approach some kind of mastery, as Adam explained. So the idea that everybody can master something, do I have that right that you, that you say that in the book? Well, what I say is that we all can pursue the mastery of, some, ah, of something. Yeah. We can certainly all engage in the mystery of mastering something. You know, I, in the course of this book, which took me 15 years of, of compiling essays, because I didn't set out to do it in a programmatic way. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to write a book about mastery. I just fell into one thing after another in the natural course of my existence, learning to draw, then I had to learn to drive in my 50s, and then I wanted to learn to dance with my daughter and so on. Um, but each one of these things, I make no claims to be any good at. You know, it's a it's a series of essays on the comedy of inadequacy. <laughs> but, but there is that process where you get good enough to feel that you've got a grasp of something that you once thought you maybe couldn't even do. Exactly, exactly. I'll never be Michelangelo, but I understand now what goes into the business of making a life, drawing a naked human being. I understand that better. You don't want to get in the car with me at 2 a.m. to drive from Boston (laughs) to New York, but I know what driving is about. And boxing, which has been a particularly rich one for me, uh, again, if they find another five-foot-five Jewish writer who has been practicing a sedentary occupation for the past 40 years, you're I'll in. hop you're, into you're the up, ring. You're up I'm for in. It. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm, I'm going to Vegas, the Caesar, <laughs> Caesar's Palace parking lot. But in the absence of that engagement, I'm totally, uh, I can take so much satisfaction just out of the, the feeling I have that I now am a much better boxer than I was a year ago, much less two years ago. And the way that just those simple um, aspirations to mastery through perseverance genuinely f- burst our hearts with pleasure, more pleasure than a few things accepted, more pleasure than we get elsewhere, that's accessible to everyone. What was so beautiful about following Luke, if you haven't followed your 13-year-old son to Las Vegas and stayed up with him at 3 a.m. when all the magicians get off work and sit around talking, um, th- you haven't lived. And what was fascinating is that's where I got the title from, Alan, was um, 
all the magicians at 3 a.m., the pepper mill on the strip, a, a diner on the strip, they would sit and talk. And magicians have great shop talk. Writers have the worst shop talk in the world. There's nothing we can talk about except laptops and advances. <laughs> That's it. We have no... We have no hidden stuff to talk about. Actors have great shop talk because all they do is they badmouth directors. So all they, they, they spend all their time badmouthing directors and authors, right? Can you believe these guys, the creative team? But magicians have beautiful shop talk because they can only talk to each other. They can't talk about what they're doing to civilians. So when they're together, yeah, they just right, right. light up. And what they would always use was this expression, the real work. They would kind of mutter to each other, you know, Flosser's Illusion. Who's got the real work on that? You know, the, the Erdane shuffle. Who's got the real work on that? And I was fascinated. What did they mean by it? And then I realized over time that what they meant was not who had invented the trick or the illusion or the gaff. They meant who is it who does it with maximum technical virtuosity, but at the same time with real empathetic engagement with the audience. Not who does it mechanically the most perfectly, but who makes it land, who really, who really makes it uh, perfect as a performance. And that fascinated me because I think it's something we all know in any of the kind of work we do. You know, when you ask a plumber, who's got the real work in plumbing? Who's the Willie Mays of plumbing? They're not mute. They say, oh, Joe Catalano, until you've seen this guy working, you don't know what plumbing is. And we all recognize that in our, our own fields. We know what the real work is uh, instantaneously. It's actually quite funny because the example I use, this just suddenly came into my head now, is from something that you that engaged you. It was in George Plimpton's Paper Lion, which, of course, you starred in all, many years ago. And in it, he talks about how at the All-Star game, or the All-Pro game, I guess they called it, right, the, the coaches didn't have to tell the players how to break up into first team, second team, and so on. The players knew. The players knew no one was going to play quarterback except Johnny Unitas, right? In the same way now, you wouldn't have to tell the other quarterbacks that Patrick Mahomes has got the real work. They know it, right? In the same way that in, in that time, they knew that Johnny Unitas had the real work. And we all know that in our field. We talk about relating to one another a lot on Clear and Vivid. And that's something that's really difficult to do well when people have very strong opposing views, like in politics. Steve Israel spent 16 years as a member of Congress, and he had to face that challenge many, many times. I had a fascinating conversation with Steve, who found some innovative ways to break down the barrier that holds back real collaboration. I heard you tell a story once in an interview of how you managed to make progress in cultivating comedy and cooperation yeah. with a group of 25 members from the Republican side and 25 Democrats in a Chinese restaurant yeah. with a kitchen timer. Yeah. <laughs> now, what, was, what yeah. was the value of the Chinese restaurant and the kitchen timers? <laughs> well, first of all, the Chinese restaurant uh, was... Uh, Inexpensive. <laughs> and so not, members of Congress just, you know, the, the, the cheaper the meal, the more likely they are to show up. Uh, secondly, it was within three blocks of Capitol Hill. Uh, and so if a vote was called in the middle of dinner uh. Uh, and, you, you know, members have 15 minutes to get to the floor and vote, uh, we could do it. But it was predicated on a fascinating experience I had. Uh, one day uh, there were votes and I had to be uh, back in my district in New York which meant I had to vote and get on the 
shuttle uh, to LaGuardia Airport, which meant I had to be the first member out the door to make my flight. And uh, I cast my vote and I was rushing out and there was this congressman in front of me who was a little slow moving and uh, he was kind of grappling with that heavy bomb resistant door. Uh, And so I reached out and I pushed open the door and it cut the lower corner. This is a this is a bomb resistant door. So it's reinforced the lower corner of the door, put a gash through his shoes and he fell to his knees and he screamed. And I did what any good New Yorker would do. I just kept going because I couldn't be late. This is the beginning of a great relationship. Yeah, well, it's that's exactly what happened. A week later, we were in the members' gym, which uh, I don't want any of your listeners to be uh, to make certain assumptions. The members' gym is like any other gym in America. We pay dues, right? It, it, there's a cost to it. It's not taxpayers subsidized. And this guy, this congressman was next to me. He was on the elliptical, and I was on the bike, and he said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, I do not. He said, uh, you ripped my shoe. You made me bleed. You tried to cut in front of me last week. Uh, and uh, I said, well, that tells me one thing. You, you need more expensive shoes. Well, here's what we, we – so that began the relationship, and this is what we noticed. In the members' gym, Democrats and Republicans get along wonderfully. We compete respectfully, basketball, handball, paddleball. But as soon as we get on the elevators and go three flights up to the floor of the house, you know, we sound like a fourth-grade elementary school assembly that's run amok. So we decided to do an experiment. He invited 25 Republicans. I invited 25 Democrats. We went to a Chinese restaurant once a month. We'd pick an issue. Uh, Let's say at the time, the Affordable Care Act. Kitchen timer, five minutes, yell your disagreements. 55 minutes, what can you agree on? And those are the best 55 minutes of my career in Congress, I will tell you, every month. Wow. And that was the kitchen timer. And everybody respected the, the ding. You, they they, they uh, respected the ding. You know, the valuable lesson I learned from that was that Democrats and Republicans are going to disagree on 75% of the issues. That's fine. There's a reason I'm a Democrat. There's a reason this particular member of Congress that uh, I worked with, his name was Tim Johnson, Republican from Springfield, Illinois, the district that Abraham Lincoln once represented. There's a reason that he became a Republican. The problem with Washington, these dinners taught us, was not that Democrats and Republicans will disagree. It's that we're so busy beating each other up on 75% that we will never agree on that we forget that there's 25% that we can't agree on. Uh If we would just focus on that 25%, the country would be much better off. I hope you'll join us next week as we begin season 21 with my conversation with Eric Topol. Till then, be clear and vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.